Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Abadisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Hello everyone, I'm Ani Abadisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism, give it all a good hard shake and pour... Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for joining me for yet another round of cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo in today's Oh My Gosh Half the people are brainwashed, the other half are sloshed, while the truth is brutally squashed, dysfunctional little world. As always, we try to do this with as much grace and empathy as can be mustered on any given day. We are not always successful, I'll admit to that, but we are honour-bound to give it a shot. And on this show, the Metaphysical Martini Show, we do love shots, yes we do. Our rally cry is awaken, O my people. Do not follow the path of the sheeple and do not give our God cause to weeple. If you're joining us for the very first time, a very warm welcome to you. Be advised, we do not do politically correct on this show because we do not wish to erode our intellect. We martini heads are straight-talking, straightforward folks. We may be direct, but we come from a core of respect. There's no fakery here to up our numbers. What you see is what you get. We value common decency, common courtesy, and common sense. And when we use labels, we do so for identification purposes. We are strictly non-partisan because we believe all parties are in the can. Our world has lost its moral compass, and without a moral compass, the political arena is nothing more than a never-ending power play benefiting a small number of sociopaths gorging themselves on the fat of the land while the rest of humanity begs for crumbs under fully laden tables. And honestly, by now, with so many historical repetitions of the same scenario through the ages, humanity should know better. And that's what this show is all about, looking at a bigger picture, stepping outside the carefully crafted establishment narrative. And I will say... That's not for the faint of heart. So if you're one of the tens of millions who would rather sleep comfortably in the manufactured illusion, if you're content to do as you're told, eat what you're given, behave as ordered and believe everything the daily spin churns out, this show is not for you. So move along now. Nothing to see here. If, on the other hand, you have capacity for objective thought, and wish to better understand the marvels of co-creation, to enjoy your incarnation, you might hear something of value in the next hour. Who knows? Life is an adventure. An adventure means boldly going forth to where no man has been before, not cowering in fear whenever we have to open a new door. 
So, my darlings, let's get on with it then. Questions, answers, and comments, quack, is the reason we started this show. To hear what you, the people, have to say about your personal and our collective evolution. So if you would like to share the contents of your fabulous minds on this fabulous show, send your emails to Arnie at ArnieAbadician.com or by snail mail to Cosmic Arnie, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, USA. And please let me know how and if you wish to be identified, or I will refer to you as Omit Personal Details. And before we get into Quack, I just want to say a thank you to all the people who write in and tell me how much they enjoy this show. Because, you know, you put this stuff out into the ether, you don't know where it goes. And when you guys write to me, it gives me a reason for living. So thank you. And I want to thank Annette Trinidad from Maine, who sent me this lovely postcard of the Highland Lighthouse uh, from Truro in Maine to tell me how much she enjoys the show and that she looks forward to. So thank you, Annette, for your kind words. Thank you for taking the time to write in and give me some encouragement. So Maine, it's been on my must-visit list for years now, because as we know, I, I live in Oregon. So hopefully when all this crapola with the macaroni is over, I look forward to visiting Maine, and I will definitely look you up, and we can do Maine things together. I'm not actually sure what all that is, but if it involves a lobster sandwich, I'm in. Okay, right, our first question. Let's take a look at our little fishbowl. What's in there today? Our first question is from a chap called Dean, who says, Dear Arnie, that's me, it's almost election day. <laughs> Don't I know it, brother. What are your thoughts and what advice can you offer? Will it be I'm a getting out of here, <laughs> as in Armageddon? Or will it be hallelujah, the golden age is upon us? Either way, my family is prepped and ready for whatever comes along. Well, Dean, here's what I think will happen. If we the people have reached critical mass in the awakening to truth arena, POTUS 45 will be re-elected. His opponents that would be deep state, the establishment, will take going ballistic to new heights. And I predict a significant spike in organized civil disorder because they're going to use every trick in the book <clears throat> up to and including the realms of the ridiculous to discredit him and all who stand for individual and national sovereignty. By now, I have to say, anyone who thinks the riots that we're having are random and spontaneous um, spontaneous you must be naive beyond measure my darlings so uh, I think perhaps martial law may have to be imposed we'll see about that but 2021 is going to be a rough ride until enough of the state sanctioned corruption is exposed and enough people are prosecuted to make denial futile and even then Dean I think there's going to be fallout because you know these deep staters they're sociopaths and sociopaths will fight to maintain control until the last drop of their blood has been drained. And since the members of the establishment are sociopaths who quite literally worship Lucifer and set great store by spilling blood, I have no problem helping them with the draining process. Then what will happen? Well, all the brainwashed and mind-shackled people will have a choice. Now, Please, I'm not being derogatory when I say brainwashed and mind shackled. 
I mean brainwashed as in systemic indoctrination and mind controlled by generating specific frequencies. This stuff happens, people. So all of those people, they're going to have to wake up from a nasty nightmare and regroup. Now that takes guts and a goodly amount of fortitude, and they will need compassionate assistance from those who saw through the cow poo. And I imagine a goodly portion of them will remain locked in the illusion of the nightmare, which they will continue to perceive as their personal dream while grieving bitterly because the other side is in control. Either way, I see big potential for POTUS stepping down once the worst is over and handing over the reins to his VP. And by this, I mean he'll probably do it in his third year of the elected four years. And he's not going to do this until we're safely out of the clutches of the globalists. So don't be upset when he does it. It's actually a good sign. And uh, what else did you say, Dean? What else did you say? Oh, yeah, you talked about prepping. I I'm, I'm think you mean in a, in a general sense, but everyone, especially urban and suburban dwellers, should have a comprehensive 90-day unexpected emergency kit on hand and one fully stocked 72-hour emergency kit per person in each family vehicle. I'm not talking to rural folks because in my um, experience, they're generally much better prepared for this sort of thing. Um, one more thing I would add, Dean, is that we are all in this mess because we allowed propaganda to control our minds. And the mind is a very powerful tool. And we should take care to make sure that we are the ones taking up the space within it. Thanks for writing in, Dean. All the best to you and yours. Whatever happens, happens, and I guess we'll all deal with it, right? All right, let me have a little sip of this um, Halloween-flavored cocktail. Very nice. We'll talk about that towards the end of the show. Mmm, yummy. Okay, let's shake up our fishbowl of perpetual perplexity and pop out another question. This is from Archie, who says, Hey, Annie. Hey, Archie. Is it true there are underground bases inside Earth with little greys in them? Are they the bad greys or the good greys? And what the heck are they doing there? Well, Archie, it's true. I would call them the neutral greys. They're not here to harm us. They're here because they required our DNA to help them regain the ability to reproduce. Uh, we've discussed this before, I think, in previous shows. Over the years, greys became sterile and they used cloning to propagate the species. <clears throat> and when a soul, well, a soul can actually enter a clone, but the clone is emotionally and physically sterile. And so the species will lose empathy. And once empathy is lost, well, you're no better than automatons, really. So the little greys are working with creating grey human hybrids. By all accounts, it's going very well. The experiments are a success. The only complaint seems to be that after so many years of... Um, well, sterile stoicism, I suppose, that a lack of empathy brings you. The hybrid children have plenty of emotions, and they're running their parents ragged, both uh, physically and emotionally. But hey, it's better than extinction. Um, I have heard from reliable sources that the establishment has made several attempts to persuade the little grades, who are actually Zeta reticulans, to take part in staged terror tactics. The Greys refused each and every time and finally told the establishment to stop asking because they would never acquiesce to such a demand. 
And for that, we thank them. Thank you, Archie, for writing in. All the best to you and yours. People, you have nothing to fear from aliens. If anybody stages a fake alien scenario terror tactic, it is exactly that. It's all fake. We are in the hands of the good aliens. Um, there's nothing to fear. I promise you. All right, moving on. What have we got? I might have to do another little show just to catch up with questions. Okay, because some of them are sort of election specific and all of that. So we've got a note here from, um, do not give my omit personal details, who asks, Ani, if members of the establishment are, as you claim, Luciferians who do not co-create with source energy, where does their power come from? I believe in God and my power comes through my Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Does Lucifer still have dominion in our world? Hmm. How shall I answer this? Omit personal details. Okay. Anything we focus on repeatedly and give energy to repeatedly has, on some level, dominion over us. Luciferians have literally enthroned Lucifer in their hearts and minds, so as far as they are concerned, he has dominion over their hearts and minds. They have given themselves to him freely. Now, the actual energy of Lucifer was contained by the divine many moons ago, but not the fallout from his experiments. The vibration of fear <clears throat> is still very much alive and palpable. So I would say since Lucifer's core energy is greatly diminished, the establishment needs to feed on our fear. You have to understand Luciferianism isn't all about devil worship. It's about not running things by source energy. It's about putting all of your energies into what is material. And that's all temporary, temporary and fleeting. So they are people who worship money, materials. They cut themselves off from their empathic core. They do not run anything by source energy. That's why they design and stage terror tactic scenarios such as 9-11 and the macaroni and cheese event. So unless we the people are kept in a constant state of fear and threat perception, they, the establishment, have nothing to feed on. Should we all take a moment to process that? If we call them out on their hoaxes and walk away laughing at their attempts to hold us hostage with their false illusions, without our fear, they will starve and they will die. So every time we fall for a pre-planned terror tactic, and comply with the establishment's increasingly ridiculous demands. We are creating food for our captors. Now, that's something to think about, isn't it? And it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Thank you for sharing your thoughts, Mr. or Mrs. Omit Personal Details. I wish you all the best to you and to yours. All right, so we're on this new format where we're trying to fit everything into this one hour, um, but I think we have time for more questions. Okay, so here we go. Because, you know, you wrote to me and said too many questions, not enough of the other stuff. And then last time you wrote to me and said not enough questions, too much of the other stuff. I don't know what to do, people. 
I'm doing my best here. So let's take another question. This is from Sonia, who's in California, oh boy, who asks, Ani, what is the purpose of burning something such as incense or an aromatic resin or something else used in ritual? Why not just offer it in its raw state? Oh gosh, thanks for asking a question that doesn't have anything to do with Lucifer or, or deep state. Uh, well, Sonia, in a nutshell, I would say it's the magic of transmutation. So an aromatic resin, such as frankincense, if it's good quality, it smells very pleasant in its raw, unaltered state. But you let it warm up over a charcoal tablet, and you release the chemicals within it, and you unlock that divine aroma. Same thing with sage and sweetgrass and other grasses. They're lovely in their raw state, but light them up and magical medicine fills the room. And each substance, it has its unique aroma, its unique purpose to serve. My go-to is three parts frankincense to one part myrrh. It's what I call a myrtini um, that not only clears the energy, but it uplifts the mind. And then mixing, say, three parts of dark benzoin incense to one part white copal goes a long way to clearing a room for a difficult confrontational meeting. I burn a lot of pine resin to help clear attachments when I'm dealing with mental health issues. And I could give you about 101 combinations right off the top of my head. You know, it's a beautiful thing, a ritual. The smoke acts as both a spiritual fumigant and as a way for us to see our prayers floating to heaven. I used to teach classes on this. Um, you know, I think it's time to do that again. Because in this day and age where we're all so confused and so angry and frustrated, we need the discipline of ritual to help us reclaim our minds from the madness. Magic of transmutation, Sonia. It was a resin. Now it's smoke. How beautiful is that? Thank you, darling, for writing in. All the best to you and yours. Let's take a look. What have I got here? This one is from a chap called Seth. Well, I think it's a chap. Um, Arnie, what is the difference between possession and channeling? Ooh, good question. I, I think that's an easy one. I would say free will. When we channel... We allow a higher wisdom to flow through us, but not to take over. Now, possession, while it could be argued that we allowed it by not caring for our mental health, possession is when an entity smothers us to the extent that it inhabits us, and it takes over our personality and renders us incapable of making free will decisions. And that entity could be human or non-human or a vast pool of redundant thought forms that has morphed into some sort of dark personality, low-level intelligence. You know, I've been doing this work a very long time, and I know a thing or two, but I'm certainly not arrogant enough to think that I know everything, as every new day brings a new experience that humbles me all over again. We can't label everything. We just have to accept that we're coming across some new experience and figure out how best to deal with it. Now, a channel, you know, like you go to a medium or an intuitive speaker, <clears throat> they retain their sovereignty while temporarily allowing another being to communicate through them. 
and it's perfectly fine. They just breathe and tune out, tune in to the great divine server, and allow the higher being, there should always be a higher being, to speak wisdom through them. But a possessed person has lost access to the sovereign part of their being, sometimes temporarily and sometimes, unfortunately, for the rest of their lifetime. And one of the questions we get asked is with regard to the entities. I mean, does the entity cause the mental health issue or does the mental health issue attract the entity? Chicken or egg, right? Well, my response to that is that most mental health related entities are created from our thought forms. And that's why we have to meditate and keep our energy clear and ensure that we are the ones taking up space in our heads. Most mental health is because we don't process our emotions and we greenhouse gas our energy field with unprocessed emotions. And that's like not taking out your trash ever. And if you did that in your kitchen, you didn't take out your trash for 40 years, your kitchen is going to have serious mental health issues. So don't expect any less from you. The law of attraction comes into play here. If you find people that you're sinking into bad habits, depression, high anxiety, other non-productive patterns of thought and behavior, nip it in the bud. Do not delay. Ask for help. There's no shame in it anymore. It's 2020. You know, especially today when our world is purging the deepest depths of its dysfunction to make way for the new golden age. Thank you, Seth. All the best to you and yours. I think we have time for one more and maybe a couple of quickies. Let's see how we go. Um, I do like to try to get, you know, keep it to an hour. It makes my producer very happy. All right. Uh, what should we do? What should we do? Let's do this one. Claire. This is from Claire. And Claire asks, can you make someone do something against their will? Hmm. Where is this going, Claire? For example, if I know someone who drinks very heavily and is slowly killing himself, can an energy worker go behind his back without him knowing, make him stop? I see where you're going with this. Um, uh, and I don't mean to be flippant. Let me just have a sip of my martini because my voice is going here. Mm. All right. Um, okay, Claire. There are powerful, there are powerful energy manipulators who could probably pull that off, albeit temporarily. But listen, unless you work for the dark side, which I don't, interfering with free will, well, it's taboo. Whoever this gentleman is, it's his journey to overcome his challenges. It's not yours. It's not anyone else's. And we don't know really why he's chosen to self-destruct. I mean, is it part of a soul contract? He's playing out with someone? Or is it just that he lost his way? If this gentleman doesn't want any interaction with outside help, and you went to an energy worker, we would approach it from a completely different angle. We would start with a gentle but thorough energy anatomy clearing and, and recalibration. Sort of think of it as returning the energy anatomy to the manufacturer's default specifications. And there are many versions of this protocol and many variations depending on who you go to. My recommendation is to seek out an experienced and well-respected person. Because on a soul level, no one would object to that. And a professional would do it with no expectation, no investment or intention, 
other than to honor the individual's core holiness and to help him to release any burdens that are overwhelming. Then the energy worker would step back and ask you to observe any changes. No other decisions would be made or should be made at that time until the changes, if any, are processed. Working with people who have hit rock bottom requires careful handling and a high degree of skill. Claire, I know it's painful to watch someone engage in destructive behavior, but contrary to popular belief, rushing in and doing everything we can to get them to disengage is not always the best way to help them. Now, a full energy workup might just put him back in control of his mind just enough to ask for help. And then again, it might not. Sometimes it really does take a village. And sometimes when deep down we know we are losing this battle, we just have to step back and let it happen. Good luck to you, Claire. All the best to you. All the best to your friends. I think we have a couple of quickie questions that we can take before moving on to the rest of the show. Let me shake up my fishbowl of perpetual perplexity. While I do that, let me have a little sip of this exceptionally pretty cocktail that I'm going to share with you later. Well, I'm going to share the recipe. Unfortunately, um, we don't have the replicator nanotechnology to share it with you in actuality. Maybe that'll happen next year. We'll see. All right, here's one. Ani, if reptiles are so intelligent, <laughs> why don't they put down their arms and awaken? Well, what a funny question. Um, and a good question, actually. Intelligence and awakening in spirit do not necessarily go hand in hand, love. I mean, theirs, the reptilians, theirs is a race that reveres strength and honor and conquest. You can be intelligent but not awakened in spirit consciousness. Sociopaths are a good example, aren't they? The empathy meter barely registers on them, if at all. And I'm going to have to say that reptilians have much more empathy than sociopaths because they're not really sociopaths. There are sociopaths among them. But as a race, just because they're militaristic and they have strength and honor and conquest, it doesn't mean that they're sociopaths. They do love their families. They have feelings towards each other. It's just that perhaps they favor their own species above others. So when you go to any of the reptilian words, worlds, you know, you probably won't see a human lives matter billboard on any reptilian homeland. <laughs> but, you know, that's OK with me because I, for one, as a human, do not need their permission or intervention to thrive. Thanks for the question, matey. Here's another one. Oh, let's see. Oh, yeah, here it is. Okay. Has God ever destroyed souls before they were too evil? Because they were too evil. Oh, we've touched on this subject before on this show. All right. Uh, how shall I explain this? You can't destroy a soul. It's cosmic energy. You can't destroy the raw cosmic energy that constitutes a soul. But you can wipe its memory clean and send it back to level one. For example, to start life again as an earthworm or some other such thing, crawling its way to the light again as if it were the first time ever in creation. If a being has absorbed so much darkness over multiple incarnations that it cannot be housed in heaven upon its death, 
it will go to the other place. It's not hell. There is no hell. But the other place is a small dense sphere near the moon where it will be housed until creator, not God, creator, decides to remove it and wash it clean in the heart of source. And let me tell you, you have to be exceptionally lost and dark to be sent to that place. I, I visited the lowest level of heaven and it was spooky. I will tell you, it was spooky. But the other place is so dense that even the angels patrolling it stay out of its orbit. And when they have to retrieve a soul, it's pretty much a special, you know, special forces operation. All right, chaps, everybody get together, get your gear in, get armed, whatever you need, put on the armor of God, blah, 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 in and out as quickly as possible so as not to be trapped in the density. And the density is required so that the dark souls cannot escape. Apparently, every so often, once in a very blue moon, because that place is patrolled quite regularly, well, very regularly, somebody awakens and you, it's like this little whimper of, oh, help. And they can be, with, with creator's permission, if they keep that up for long enough, they can be taken out of the density and put into, I guess, the lowest level of heaven and work their way up. But that is apparently very, very rare. Well, those were some good questions. Very happy with those. Thank you, everyone. I know that we've been a little bit obsessed with uh, elections, politics, deep state, because after all, you know, it's that time, a critical time of awakening for our planet, the great shitstorm and then the great awakening. But I look forward to uh, after the election where we can all get back to rebuilding our lives and uh, talking about metaphysical principles, primarily to make sure that we don't go through this again. I think we can wrap up questions, answers, and comments for this segment today. I want to thank you again, my darlings, for writing in. Um, we've had more and more as the show goes on, and I'm just delighted that you, you, you show an interest and keep them coming because it gives me a reason for living. All right, let's do a quick recap of upcoming classes that I have. If you want to know what I'm up to, and I, I certainly do, I would go to my website, arniavidician.com. You can also sign up for my newsletter, Monday Messages. It comes out on the first Monday of each month. And it's it's witty and it's fun and it's just more fun than a barrel of monkeys. So sign up for that and you'll also get a heads up of what I will be doing. This month, October 24th, my cosmic conversation from 5 p.m. to 6.45 p.m. Pacific time is prepping for soft clueless urbanites. And the details are on my website. That's about prepping for people who live in the city or the suburbs who know nothing about prepping, just to make sure that you can survive multiple episodes of breakdown in distribution and chain supply. The grid might go down. You know, nothing too serious, but I want to make sure that you're all fed and can take care of yourselves. This is not hardcore prepping. I'm not going to teach you how to dig a latrine in the woods. I could, but that's not what this one is all about. Then the Cosmic Conversation on November 21st is a light-hearted overview of Luciferian ideology, and I will explain how mind control works. Believe me, people, I will keep it as light as possible. But since it's a big subject, people are asking about it. I want to make sense of it for you. 
And then December the 19th, that Cosmic Conversation is going to be on his solstice and Christmas party. And it's going to be more of a party than a class. We're going to talk about different traditions. We're going to have songs, poems, stories, share cocktail recipes. You know, get your cocktails. Get ready to join in the revelry. I'm not going to charge anything for that one. You can send me a donation if you like, but you don't have to. And I think that's it. Go to my website, figure out what I'm doing, and someone let me know, because more often than not, I do not know. And now, my darlings, for a slight change of pace. It's time for Tarot-A-Go-Go. A little what the heck with your favorite tarot deck. We are using the Robin Wood deck, but feel free to use your own. If you are new to tarot, I recommend choosing a deck that has traditional symbolism. Don't go too far out. Now, we finished aces, number ones, on our show. So today's card, it's number two. We're going to start the number two. And we're going to start with the suit of wands. So let's pick up this card and see what it's all about. I've got it in my hand, number two, in the suit of wands. So there's a young chap, and he's holding an orb in one hand and a long staff in the other. Hmm, that sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? But the orb is actually a globe, and the staff, it's like a wand, like Gandalf would have, and it's topped with a lovely crystal. So I'm looking at him. He's well-dressed. He's got a lovely, colourful tunic over his shirt and pants, and he has very nice hair and a spiffy hat. So I get the impression he's not short on cash. Looks a bit like a young, wealthy merchant to me, that sort of type. So he's standing on his balcony, looking out over the ocean. Is he waiting for his ship to come in? It seems to me he is. He started something, a project, a venture, and he's waiting to see how it develops. Now, I think it might be too early for a return on his investment, but he's certainly expecting a progress report. I get the impression with this card that, well, we're happy with our negotiations. We feel comfortable, comfortable, confident and comfortable and other C words with our partners and with the groundwork we have laid out. I also get the feeling that travel might be in the air, maybe a relocation. I sense an undercurrent of excitement. You know, the type of excitement when you've done all the right things and made all the right noises and you're pretty sure it's all going to work out. But you're a little impatient and you want to see results now. That's how this card makes me feel. It's a good excitement. But instead of anxiously awaiting results, let's take the time to double check everything. Review the next stage of our enterprise. This is a business card. It's all about negotiations and partnerships. Now. What will happen if we turn this card upside down and read it in the reversed position? I don't know. Let's do it and find out. Ooh, well, poor. It's a bit of an anticlimax. Looks like things will not turn out the way we planned. Perhaps we chose the wrong partner. Perhaps we lost interest and enthusiasm along the way. Perhaps we were a little too cocky and bit off more than we could chew. When I reverse this card, I feel disillusioned. I feel someone is being stubborn. I feel there's too much pride. There's miscommunications, problems with business. Ah, uh, 
if you pick this card and you are asking about a potential business partner, if you get it reversed, I would choose very, very carefully. Something is not quite right. There's a spanner in the works, and it could be missed details. It could be bad planning, or it could be a bad person. So the two of wands, right way up, yay, fill your cup. But if reversed, your bubble may burst. All right, and now it's time for... The Cryptic Mystic, where we have our way with someone dead who liked to pray. And today's Holy Roly is someone not very well known. It is the Armenian mystic St. Gregory of Narek, or Sukhrikor Naregatsi, as he's called by the Armenians. So who is this chap, and why do we care? And let's find out. So Gregory was born in the city of Narek. We're talking about 950 Common Era. And he was a monk, a good poet. He was a mystical philosopher, I suppose, a theologian um, with many talents. Born into a family of gifted writers. And he received his education under the guidance of his father, who was a bishop, Bishop Frostrov. He became a priest at 25, having already been a monk, and he dedicated himself completely to God, which is what you're supposed to do if you're a priest. He was always searching for the inner wisdom, the truth within. Now, most of his life, he did live in the monasteries of Narek, and he taught there in the school. When did he come into some sort of prominence is when one of the minor Armenian feudal princes commissioned him to write a commentary on the Song of Songs, you know, Solomon's Song of Songs. And he was quite young and everyone said, nah, this monk, this priest guy, he's far too young for it. But he did an excellent job, excellent job. And he was praised for his clarity of thought and for the excellence of his theological presentation. He wrote a lot of letters. He wrote um, sharagans, which are devotional hymns, but not attached to a particular um, liturgy. Uh, treasures, odes, melodies. Um, he wrote a lot, but he was famous for this one thing, the Book of Lamentations. Sometimes it's called just, well, sometimes it's called the Book of Lamentations. Sometimes it's just called Narek, and sometimes it's called the Prayer Book. And I'm very happy that this book made it. It wasn't burnt or destroyed. And thankfully, it was 1673 in Marseille, it was put into print, and it exists now in about 30 different languages. So he said of this book, it's letters like my body, it's message like my soul. And he called this book an encyclopedia of prayer, and he wanted everyone from all nations to benefit from him. So Gregory of Narek, He's considered by the Armenians to be one of the greatest poets of his nation, and certainly its greatest mystic. He was um, revered for his unparalleled command of the Armenian language, and apparently he was quite a saintly person and an inspiration to the faithful. Of course, miracles are attributed to him. We never know with these miracles whether they happened, but they're always attributed to people. Um... I'd like to read a passage from the Lamentations of Narek, because <clears throat> something's always lost in translation, but the palpable vibration of lamentation, I think, transcends all language barriers. And I'm going to read it to you in English. I'm going to do you a favor. Okay. All right. Here we go. And this is the last of the Lamentations, Lamentation number 95. By your noble and glorious blood, offered unceasingly to please God who sent you, May the dangers be lifted from me, 
May my transgressions be forgiven. May my vices be pardoned. May my shamelessness be forgotten. May my sentence be commuted. May the worms shrivel. May the wailing stop. And the gnashing of teeth fall silent. Let the laments lessen and tears dry. Let morning end and darkness be banished. May the vengeful fire be stamped out and torments of every kind exiled. May you who grant life to all be compassionate now. Let your light dawn, your salvation be swift, your help arrive in time, and the hour of your arrival be at hand. And I'm going to read um, <clears throat> a little bit of the very first of the Lamentations. Just a couple of verses. The voice of a sighing heart, it sobs and mournful cries. I offer up to you, O seer of secrets, placing the fruits of my wavering mind as a savory sacrifice on the fire of my grieving soul to be delivered to you in the censer of my will. Compassionate Lord, breathe in this offering and look more favorably on it than upon a more sumptuous sacrifice offered with rich smoke. Please find this simple string of words acceptable. Do not turn in disdain. May this unsolicited gift reach you, this sacrifice of words from the deep mystery-filled chamber of my feelings, consumed in flames, fueled by whatever grace I may have within me. As I pray, do not let these pleas annoy you, Almighty like the raised hands of Jacob, whose irreverence was rebuked by Isaiah, not let them be seen as the impudence of Babylon, as criticized in the 72nd Psalm. Let these words be acceptable, as were the fragrant offerings in the tabernacle at Shiloh, raised again by David on his return from captivity, as the resting place for the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol for the restoration of my soul. Okay, I wasn't going to read that much, but I get carried away, and um, I just, I love the Lamentations of St. Gregory of Narek, 950 Common Era to 1003 Common Era, and I suspect unless you're a theologian or an Armenian, you will not have heard of this chap. So if you're into this kind of stuff, check him out. The Book of Lamentation is, um, well, you can buy it, of course, but there's also a PDF online. Just type in Gregory of Narek Prayers. And at least one site has a PDF of all the 95 Lamentations. And that, my darlings, is a whole lot of lamentation. Something Armenians are familiar with over the years due to the challenges of their geographical location. And once again, we have conflict in um, that region of the Caucasian mountains with uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, ethnic enclave of Armenians, which Stalin placed promptly into Azerbaijan. Uh, a nation of Azeri Turks. Um, gosh, there is no glory in war. Lord, make us all instruments of thy peace. All right. Should we have a little humor? I think we should have a little humor. It's time. So I think we'll do a little pat of poetry. Yes, folks. After a hard day's shamaning, I like nothing better than coming home, putting my feet up, having a nice cup of tea or a small drinky-poo, 
and writing really bad, non-peer-reviewed poetry. And I do this as a service to mankind, my darlings. I do this so that the better poets shine. You know, you've got to have contrast. Today's selection is titled, One Should Never Rush a Cocktail. I shall have a little sip before I read this to you. Mm. Me, 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 me. Okay, here we go. One should never rush a cocktail. The measurements should be precise. If the perfect balance is not achieved, the presentation and aroma will fail to entice. One should never rush a cocktail, for it is a precious and soothing balm. And if consumption is monitored, well, such a jewel can do no harm. My preference is to stick with the classics, though I'm not averse to experimentation. After all, life is an adventure, and cocktails are part of the great co-creation. The weight of the world, it makes one weary, for it is filled with liars and pretenders. And that's why, right next to my scriptures, I keep a copy of Mr. Boston, bartender. One should never rush a cocktail. The measurements should be precise. If the perfect balance is not achieved, the presentation and aroma will fail to entice. Well, there it is, my darlings. I hope you enjoyed it, because if you didn't, I suppose you were very bored there for that two minutes. All right. What should we do next? Aha! I think I know what we'll do next. Yes, I do. It's time for Points to Ponder, also known as The Wizard's Gizzard. <laughs> we spare no expense with sound effects on this show, I'll have you know. All right. Because we're in such extremes in polarity and such exaggerations in contrast at such a difficult time right now, I think I'd like to talk a little bit about fear. People who bully. There's a lot of that going on right now. People who seek to dominate. People who seek to control our behavior by instilling fear. These people, they're perceived as strong people, but they're not. They are weak. They are insecure people. Without our fear to feed upon, they would scurry away into a corner and whimper like a wounded animal. Most people attack others because they perceive a threat to themselves. We see this type of behavior across the spectrum in society, from the establishment that can't survive without feeding on the fear of the masses, from the schoolyard bully who is probably bullied at home, to the people who are locked in depression who cannot function without manipulating the behavior of those around them, and to all the other people who are so lost, so confused, and so frightened and angry, they simply do not know how to conduct themselves. Fear is the vibration that keeps us from realizing the kingdom of heaven. 
cosmic alignment. Please choose your own words. So many of us are triggered by these words. When we buy into this fear that's created for us by others, please realize we are giving others permission to dominate us, to oppress us, to abuse us. And as our children see us acquiesce to this mental torture and accept subservience, our world as we know it, the world upon which we have come down to glorify our divine nature, to honor self-determination through sovereignty of soul, that world will be gone forever. I do so wish, and I have no right to ask this, but I do so wish people would wake up and see this planned medical event that we're going through for what it truly is. A move towards total world domination by the establishment's false agenda of a new world order. To me, it couldn't be any clearer. But years of perceptual engineering, indoctrination, social conditioning, the daily spin, telling you what's in your head time and time again, it's taken its toll on society. I go out, I look around me, and all I hear is the bleating of sheep. And I do not mean that as an insult. I see a coward population cowered down. We used to look up to Americans in Europe because you were all rugged and you didn't do what you were told. Not at all. You blaze your own trails. Boy, has that changed. Let's make a point of taking time out whenever we find ourselves in the vibration of fear. Fear is an error in our coding. Let me repeat that. Fear is an error in our coding. It serves no purpose. If we perceive a threat, the appropriate response is a heightened state of awareness. And that is not the same as fear. In that state of mind, the heightened state of awareness, we have clarity. Everything slows down and we are aware of our surroundings. Our situational awareness goes up several notches and we know what to do. But if we let fear take a hold, we are frozen. And you know what, my darlings? Frozen people are incapable of moving fast enough to avert a threat. Please have a think on that, for those of you who have not thought on that. Fear is the vibration that keeps us from our evolution. All right, let's do something fun again. Where's my kazoo? I've got to practice some new tunes with this thing. All right, now it's time for a quick hit of Plato Chips, where we quote a philosopher of note. And I thought we'd pick somebody really obscure today. So I picked Alexander 
of Abonatatius, which nobody has heard of. I tested this out. So he was a bit of a, a sham artist, actually. You know all these people that go around inventing these religions, like the Dianetics guy and, I don't know, Jim Jones or countless others. They, they do these religions, these cults, and they make a ton of money from it, right? Well, we think of that as something relatively new, but it's not. It happened throughout history, probably, but it certainly happened as early as 160 Common Era, where religion was um, <clears throat> used to take financial advantage of very, very gullible people. So we know this about Alexander of Abonatatius. Abonatatius, by the way, as far as I know, is in the Asian part of modern-day Turkey. So there's a chap, a historian called Lucian, who wrote about him. And Alexander, he started this great hoax around 160 in his hometown, which was Abonatatius. I love saying that word, so I'm just going to keep saying it. And it's interesting that this town, Abonatatius, was known for its gullibility. What does that mean? How could a whole town be known for its gullibility? But then again, I do live 30 minutes south of Portland, Oregon, so hmm, perhaps I do understand. I do understand. Anyway, according to Lucian, whenever a man but turned up in town, they were all agog over him, over Alexander, on the instant, and they stared at him, as if he were a god from heaven. Well, you see, what did he do? I'll tell you what he did. He had a puppet. He had a puppet made of linen who talked through an unseen accomplice who was shouting down a hidden pipe. And he pretended that the voice was Asclepius, the god of medicine. <laughs> and he had convinced all the rich people in town that this was the case. And he convinced them to give him a lot of money to do these predictions, you see. And he lived well with this money, certainly. But he used a tremendous amount of it to start up some sort of spy network. And with this spy network, he had people go around and find out details of uh, all the lives of the prominent people. So when the prominent people came to Alexander to get wisdom from Asclepius, the god of medicine, he knew all about them. And everybody was, oh my gosh, this guy's an incredible medium. Even Marcus Aurelius, the Roman Empire, asked him to predict the outcome of a military campaign. And so the glove puppet <laughs> said, oh, there's going to be a great victory if you take two lions and, um, you know, just go out and buy two lions and throw them into the Danube. So Marcus Aurelius goes down to the lion shop and he buys these two lions and he throws them into the Danube. But lions are cats and they can swim. So they swam to the opposite shore, which totally flipped out the people who lived on the opposite shore. And they clubbed the lions to death. Um, and by the way, that was um, that was the war with the Marcomanni. And Marcus Aurelius lost big time. His people were slaughtered. So when it goes back to Alexander... He says, oi, what happened? And Alexander says, I said there was going to be a big victory, mate. I didn't say it was going to be yours. Oh, anyway, Alexander of Abonatatius, look him up if you want a bit of a laugh. You know, when did he die? He was 70 years old when he died. He died of gangrene. Ugh, dreadful. Anyway, I, they should make him the patron saint of, uh, of scam artists.
All right. Well, my darlings, we are getting close to the end of the show, but not quite. So I'm going to finish my drink so that I can do my closing comments. Mm. Excuse me, one more sip. It's not quite finished. Mm. Fantastico. Folks, that's it for today. I finished my yummy drink, and that always means the end of the show. And honestly, people, I just, I love you all. And I hope you enjoyed listening in as much as I enjoyed recording it, because I had a blast. I always do. It's my absolute pleasure to connect with you, and I sincerely appreciate your participation. Today's real-life martini was really quite special. It's called the Half-Blood Prince, and it's courtesy of HalfedBakedHarvest.com, and they have a whole series of Harry Potter-inspired Halloween cocktails. And this is how you make it. One quarter cup pomegranate juice, one and a half ounces or maybe two ounces of really good bourbon. I like Maker's Mark. Half an ounce of a raspberry liqueur. I recommend Chambord. Juice from half a lemon. One teaspoon of real maple syrup and little bits of pomegranates uh, for serving. Take all the ingredients, put it in a cocktail shaker, add ice and shaky, 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 shaky. Good hard shake. Strain into a coupe glass. And then add one small cube of ice and a little bit of a pomegranate. What are they called? Arrows? Those little pomegranate thingies. And, you know, I have to admit, I never thought of combining bourbon with pomegranate and raspberry. But by golly, it really works. I really recommend this. Halfbakedharvest.com. Fabulous recipes, fabulous cocktails. Now, peeps, I just want to mention something because someone asked. I do not receive any money or favors from distillers or from retail establishments. Once in a while, someone will graciously gift me a bottle of something, but it is understood that if I think their product sucks, it won't get a mention. I want to thank also the staff at my local liquor store, Stafford Beverage in North Wilsonville, for being hands-on the best liquor store in Oregon. Not only do they have a superb selection of spirits and mixers, but the lads there, they have excellent product knowledge and they are friendly and they value good old fashioned courtesy, which we need these days. And I even ran into the owner who was a delightful lady who took a goodly chunk of time out of her day to answer my questions. So I mention this because if we want to keep it local, we have to step up and be vocal. And I'm very happy on my own dime to endorse this particular local business. Now, remember, folks, cocktails are great if they are an occasional treat. If you use top quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink is all you need. I'm Arnie Avedisian. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Abedisian, The Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio.